Support for WPR comes from Lake Superior Big Top Chautauqua. Presenting concerts, shows, and events under a big canvas tent in Bayfield, Wisconsin, all summer long. Full schedule tickets and info at bigtop.org. Fasten your seatbelts and turn up your radio. We're going on an intergalactic road trip. the first artificial satellite launched in the 1950s, astronauts have traveled to the moon. Probes have explored the solar system, and instruments in space have discovered thousands of planets around other stars. Space exploration can foster innovation, pushing the limits of technology and opening our minds to new ideas and realities. But there's so much that remains a mystery about space and the universe in which we live. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today we take a trip beyond Earth's atmosphere and explore the world of space exploration after a year of astonishing discoveries. In 2022, NASA wowed us with cosmic steens captured by the James Webb Space Telescope. The DART mission slammed an asteroid into new orbit. Artemis 1 sent humanity on a new course back to the moon. And scientists discovered the closest black hole to Earth leading to incredible new theories and knowledge. But what will happen in the year to come? Well, today we'll find out, and we invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 800-780-9742. You can email ideas at wpr.org. Today we welcome two guests to the program, both of whom have extensive experience in the world of space exploration. Paul Thomas is a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Originally from Australia, he co-authored a paper with Carl Sagan on the role comet impacts may have played in the origins of life. And he worked at NASA before arriving in Wisconsin, where his research focuses on many aspects of planetary science. Paul, welcome to Route 51. Thank you, Shireen. It's great to be here. Also joining us is Chris Janssen. He is Planetarium Director at the Wausau School District. He has been inspiring students about the world beyond our planet for years. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, uh, 2022 was a huge year for space exploration. I want to ask you some about the biggest take oh, the biggest takeaways that we've got, starting with the Webb Space Telescope. I'm going to ask both of you about this, but Paul... What went through your mind when you saw those first images captured by the web? Um, I was amazed, Shireen. It's been such a long trip. Um, I think anyone that's been following the Webb Space Telescope will know that we were starting to discuss it just after Hubble was launched. Um, and in fact, the, the real development of this uh, space mission began in the mid-90s. People have spent their entire career working and waiting for this thing to be launched. The cost overruns have been legendary. The engineering challenges were unbelievable. And in retrospect, I often feel as if it was too much. We didn't have the technology to build it. We developed the technology by building it. And that's why it took so long, was so frustrating. Um, just a couple of years ago, in fact, a colleague of mine died who had spent the entire last half of his career working on web. So this is very, very hard fought and hard won. But the results are outstanding, and we've had a year of astonishing images and science now. What, what, what went through your mind, Chris? I mean, when you saw that, oh. uh, 
I mean, just did your jaw drop? Yeah, what, what Paul mentioned about the engineering marble, I mean, we're talking about uh, technology. There's 178 non-redundant release mechanisms. Oh. So you're launching something the size of a tennis court that has to fold up into a rocket housing. And then once it launches, there's 50 deployments. If any single one of the 178 non-redundant mechanisms fail, it's over. Oh, wow. So it's it like they called it the 29 days on the edge oh. when it was deploying. And then after it was deployed and we got that first uh, image back where uh, it wasn't anything spectacular. It was just like an alignment. Mm-hmm. They aimed it at a star, make sure all the mirrors are aligned. Just that alignment image was like, oh, we can breathe now. Oh, wow. Well, the Neptune rings, we saw that. That was really amazing. And Webb is also studying exoplanets. Chris, can you explain what exoplanets are? How are they being analyzed? Sure, yeah. Uh, exoplanets... Uh, well, exo means outside or external, so we have planets outside of our solar system around other stars. Um, they're detected through various ways. The most prominent way is through called a transit. Um, you have a star, it's very distant, um, and you can only see the light from the star, and you measure its brightness output. Well, if something uh, dims the star, gets in the way, it dims by a tiny, tiny fraction. Uh, I've heard some people say similar to a mosquito going in front of a, a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And if you measure that dip, you know that there is a planet there. And if you measure how the dips in their periodicity, you know, oh, that's a planet going around, you know, their orbital periodicity. If there's many dips, you know, there's many planets and so on. And so this year, uh, there was a milestone we reached. We detected over 5,000 exoplanets confirmed uh, oh, with wow. many more candidates to go. Um, so it's an it's a awesome time to be studying exoplanets. The web also caught images of galaxies that were less than 300 million years after the Big Bang. So, Paul, what does that tell us about our universe? What, we, what have we learned from the web, and how has it changed the way scientists think? Yeah, Shireen. Well, you know, it's what we're learning. So the, the real fundamental goal, I think all these big telescopes had one central goal um, associated with their design. It's the only way that scientists could get behind such an expensive mission. For Hubble, it was to measure accurately how fast the universe is expanding. And for Webb, which sees in infrared, in heat, uh, it was to see the radiation emitted from the first stars just after the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago. We really want to probe into this very early era to figure out how quickly stars and galaxies formed. So you start off with an explosion everywhere in the universe. Um, And in this time, atoms are formed for the first time. Gas starts to appear and gravitationally it collects together and forms stars and galaxies. But how quick is that? Um, uh, and what Hubble, can, uh, sorry, what Webb can do is it can probe into this very earliest era. So now you're right. We have images of the first generation of galaxies with the first generation of stars formed only 300 million years out of 13.8 billion years um, after the universe came to be. We'll never at least as far as we can tell, see back to the Big Bang. But but this provides a way for us to see the first formation of stars and galaxies. How's that even possible? I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me, Chris, to you too, I would imagine, even with all your years of studying this. Well, it's this is getting a little metaphysical, but we're sitting across the desk, but you're actually seeing me as I was because it takes light time to travel to your eyes. <laughs> So when we see light from these distant galaxies, that's how we are able to look back in time because the propagation delay from those galaxies to us. Paul, how long will Webb work? How how long will this mission last? 
Yeah, you know, um, with all of our technical challenges, I think what we've seen in the last few decades is we build these wonderful spacecraft and they last longer than we would expect. So the Hubble team, sorry, the web team initially had uh, a goal of one to two years of operation. And it's also worth pointing out that the, the, where web actually is, it's not in orbit around the Earth, at least not in a direct sense. It's at a point where the gravitational forces of the Earth and the Sun balance out. It's a million miles away from us in a point called Sun-Earth L2. So it's significantly far out in space, way beyond any repair capability. And the real limitation, aside from equipment failure, which could always occur, is it'll run out of maneuvering fuel to accurately position itself in space. And the, the real achievement of its launch and deploy, not just that all the deploy mechanisms worked, which they did, but that it was so accurately placed into its position by the European rocket that launched it, is that we ended up with a lot more maneuvering fuel than we feared we would. And now people are talking about a 10-year lifespan for it, which is tremendous. And already there are plans to launch bigger space telescopes using the same design. We feel a little cocky now that we did that 100-odd <laughs> deploys. So we should probably go ahead and do that again. And there's a telescope called Louvois that looks very much like uh, Webb, only you know three times bigger, uh, that's on the drawing boards right now. And it would be launched into the same location. I think we could talk about the the web and what we've learned from that all hour long. Uh, and Chris, you had one other thing that you wanted to add about that. Yeah, uh, web was meant to look back at the uh, kind of the primordial galaxies, mm -hmm. but the big discovery, at least for when I interact with the public, and something that I've been waiting for since like eight years old, is we've detected water mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. gases, so carbon dioxide, and, and, and I brought some spectrums and things, but uh, water on exoplanets, that's big. Can you explain why that's so big? To somebody who doesn't study this, you know, why is that such a monumental discovery? Well, I, I think that when we all look at science fiction and things, we always want aliens out there and we want life out there. But life as we know it depends on water. And so you can dream about water out there and dream about life out there. But until you actually detect it, it's just fiction. And so now we've, I mean, the planet we've detected on it's 870 degrees Celsius. So it's, it's boiling steam. But it's proven James Webb can detect water on exoplanets. And so now this beautiful scope can aim at these exoplanets that are closer to us and detect water that's cooler. So we are right on the threshold of finding Spock out there. Oh, <laughs> that is so exciting. I, I mean, just it's, it is to me. But some other fascinating events happened in 2022. One that caught my attention in particular was the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration that captured the, the first image of the black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. Paul, explain what happened there. What did it find? And what are black holes exactly? Yeah, well, black holes are um, extremely compressed stars. Generally, they form from massive stars at the end of their lives, stars that are maybe 10 times bigger than the sun. They explode in what are called supernovas. And then without any energy to stop them collapsing, they collapse all the way down um, to well beyond our theories can explain. But what happens is that the star itself becomes incapable of emitting light. It's so massive and in such a small volume that light itself can't escape. You know, for the Earth, there's an escape speed of about 25,000 miles per hour that's needed to launch any rocket that goes uh, away from the Earth. Well, for more massive objects that are extremely dense, that speed becomes the speed of light. 
and nothing can escape. But one thing that we've learned is that there is another class of black holes, and these are called supermassive black holes. These aren't formed from single stars. In fact, they seem to be at the heart of most galaxies. And the one at the center of our galaxy is four million times the mass of our sun. It must have formed from many stars collapsing into each other. Um, and most galaxies really do have these black holes. And it turns out that we can actually see them. The way to do it is to do it in radio waves, which penetrate through all the dust and gas that blocks the center of galaxy uh, of any galaxy from our view on Earth. Um, and you do it with a radio telescope, but not a single one, because you wouldn't get a sharp enough image. We've been doing this since the 50s. What you do is you actually combine a dozen or so radio telescopes scattered all around the world to create a virtual telescope. This is a technique called interferometry that effectively, at least for resolution purposes, is as big as the Earth. It's 12,000 kilometers across, 8,000 miles across. And there you get an accurate sharpness of your image that allows you to see details of a black hole. So we've done it for two black holes at the centers of galaxies. A few years ago, um, we did it for um, a, a galaxy called M87, which is about 2 million light years away. That was a result announced in 2019. And of course, everyone at the time said, wow, this is amazing. You can see the hot gas swirling around the black hole. You can see that there's a black hole because it's dark and right at the center of that. And why don't you do it for our own galaxy? And the answer is that what we're producing here is not really an image. It's, it's a mathematical representation of a whole bunch of signals from a whole bunch of radio telescopes. And we have to learn the math of how to combine this into something that looks like an image. Well, the black hole at the center of our galaxy is swirling around quite rapidly. And that really smears out the image. It makes the math incredibly hard. We didn't know how to do that in 2019. Sure. Now in 2022, we, we learned how to do it. And so now we have an image of the black hole at the heart of our own galaxy. Wonderful. It's, that is just amazing. You're listening to Route 51. Our guests, Chris Janssen and Paul Thomas, stay with us as we continue our discussion about deep space exploration and what it can tell us about the Earth itself. Ahead, we'll hear about new planetary missions, planned lunar landings, and a whole lot more. You can join in, too. We encourage you to call us with your questions, 800-780-9742. You can email us, too, ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Tell me, did you sail across the sun? Did you make it to the Milky Way to see the lights all faded? And man having his own rated. Tell me, did you fall from a shooting star? One without a permanent scar. And then you missed me while you were looking for yourself out there. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward. Paul Thomas and Chris Janssen are our guests today as we continue our discussion on space exploration. What would you like to know? Email us at ideas at wpr.org or join us by phone. The number to call, 800-780-9742. Before we move on from black holes, Paul, I want to ask you about those sound waves that NASA shared on Twitter back in August. We heard these these sound waves that were extracted from the, the black hole, and I remember hearing them for the first time and thinking, what is that? It was so eerie and so, uh, I don't know, it, it just it gave me shivers. What what were we hearing? Yeah, there's, 
so many things in nature, Shireen, that are wave-like, they're oscillatory, even if they aren't sound. You know, the sound that uh, you're hearing right now, of course, is the sound from my larynx compressing air and making it vibrate. But so many things in, in the universe have this oscillatory nature to them. Um, so in the case of the black hole, what we're looking at here is the variation in, in brightness, literally, of it as material goes into it. And, and it's, most black holes are surrounded by a disk called an accretion disk, which actually, because matter is trying to get into the black hole um, very, very forcefully, like water going down a supermassive plug hole, plug hole the size of a star, um, there's all sorts of dynamics there. The, the, the gas gets compressed and then expands and gets compressed. And that's an oscillation too. And if you turn that vibration into sound, you can, you can hear sound. People have done this for other things too. Um, Jupiter and Saturn are surrounded by radiation belts, just like the Earth. And the charged particles there oscillate as they move around the planet. And you can turn that into music too. It, it all, this sort of thing often ends up reminding me of whale song, mm -hmm. which is a, is a wonderful sort of uh, connect, conceptual connection between the deep oceans and space. Turns out the universe is full of mechanisms that work the same, even though they describe completely different things. One of the things I suspect Chris feels this too, that got many of us into science. Yeah, absolutely. When, when we can bring it to something we can relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Chris, I want to ask you about the DART mission. This okay. is something that really was, uh, it seemed like something out of a, out of a movie. This is the Double Asteroid Redirect Mission. What is it exactly, and explain what it accomplished this year. Okay. So humans have always talked about in many science fiction films, if an asteroid were to impact or be threatening the Earth, can we redirect that asteroid before it hits us so we don't go the way of the dinosaurs, which we know now were extincted from a meteor impact. Actually, it wasn't just dinosaurs. Like a third of all species on Earth died from that impact. Um, so do we have the capability of achieving more, saving our species than the dinosaurs did? Um, so this mission basically looked at a twin asteroid called Didymus, and it's so far away that you can't see the two asteroids orbiting each other. Uh, it's something called photometry. So you look at the brightness, and you'll notice it gets a little brighter and then dimmer, and 11 hours later, a little brighter and dimmer. And you think, well, why is it doing that? The asteroid is rock. It's not expanding like a balloon. Um, so why is this, it's a reflective surface, half black, half white, you know, but in terms in this case, there's another smaller one that's orbiting. And so we're getting a little, like the, the smaller twin is reflecting light, and then it goes behind the, the larger twin, and then it gets a little darker. And so but from photometry, we can measure the orbital period, know that there are two there, and so on. So we sent this spacecraft. Uh, this spacecraft isn't very heavy. The idea is that the spacecraft would impact the smaller twin, and exactly we can measure from the photometry the change in the orbit of the smaller one. And if we are able to do that as humans, if we can impact the smaller one and measure a change in the orbit of an asteroid, it's like a proving ground. Now we know we actually can change the orbit. And so um, there's a, a graph I have here which just shows that we were successful. We, uh, we changed the orbit. Um, and it's very 11 hours, 55 minutes precisely in this periodicity. So it was really easy for us to go back to the photometry and measure, oh, hey, we did it. Um, this mission is another huge engineering feat because this spacecraft's traveling 14,000 miles per hour at something we can't measure from Earth. So once you're out there, 
the, the uh, artificial intelligence on board the craft has to do auto-targeting mm -hmm. to basically crash into the twin. There is no time for us to make course corrections from Earth. The propagation delay is too long. So it's crucial to have that that calculation just precisely. Yeah, and the and the robotics and the and the software has to be on its own and precise. And so for a while they were receiving images back. Are we going to hit target? Um, and they didn't know. And they noticed that it was starting. We're getting closer and closer, and you could see the cheers happening. Like the software is working. The spacecraft is going to impact all on its own. And then we measured it like a couple hours later or a day later, and sure enough, it was a it was a resounding success. Humans now can redirect asteroids. <laughs> pretty amazing. We rock. <laughs> we rock indeed. Paul, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Mars. After four years on Mars, the the Insight Lander completed its mission. What what happened there? What did that What did that do? You know. Uh... Just to go back to Doc for a second, it's worth mentioning that, that after the, the impact that, that Chris described, we had a whole flotilla of telescopes, both on Earth and in space. The Webb and the Hubble were looking at uh, that pair of asteroids, and we saw this great plume of material leaving it. And the reason I bring that up is that we now have so many science spacecraft in the solar system, both telescopes and planetary missions that it's almost like a crowd of people looking at events as they occur. And that's the case for Mars. We have a whole bunch of spacecraft missions there. In fact, we have a, a very early version of a Martian internet where at least the US-based spacecraft are relaying signals from each other to help each other out. Uh, and this will only become more important in the future. This extends to missions from Europe, the UAE, um, United Arab Emirates, China, they're all on Mars now. The Chinese have a rover moving on Mars, as we do. We have two. But this mission was not a, um, uh, was not a, a rover mission. InSight was actually a kind of simple lander using a design that we'd used before and that we could count on that landed nowhere special on Mars. It's kind of funny. I'm sure we'll talk later about looking for evidence of ancient water on Mars. And there, we really do want to pick sites that show river valleys and ancient flows. But this just landed on a flat plain. Its goal was to measure earthquake activity on Mars. So it had a seismometer that it lowered onto the surface with an arm and measured earthquakes and measured over 1,300 of them. And what we do with earthquakes on Earth, I guess we should call them Marsquakes when they're on Mars, is we use that as kind of sonar to figure out the interior structure of a planet. So for the first time, we've detected that Mars has a core. It's a thousand miles across. Mars has a crust. Mars has hot spots and there's molten rock down there. We have a fully three-dimensional picture of the interior of Mars for the first time. Not nearly as good as we do for the Earth. For that, we'd need a whole array of these seismometers in different places. But um, we achieved uh, the first reliable study of the interior of a planet. Turns out surfaces are relatively easy to study. It's the interiors mm -hmm. that are hard. Did, did yes. You guys, did you guys see the tweet? Insight's final tweet? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I have to read this. It's funny. Okay. This is supposedly a tweet from Mars, from Insight. My power's really low, so this may be the last image I can send. Don't worry about me, though. My time here has been both productive and serene. I can keep talking uh, to my mission team. I will. If I can, I will. But I'll be signing off here soon. Thanks for staying with me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about personifying equipment. No kidding. Well, what do we, we know about... Actually, these missions. <laughs> yes. What 
do we know about Mars? Is 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 it hot? Is it cold? And is there any way we could ever live there? Oh boy! I think uh, whether we live there is 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 very much open. It's pretty hostile. It's cold. It's a cold desert with a very thin atmosphere. Now it might have had a thicker atmosphere, and it might have been warmer due to a greenhouse effect in the past. Maybe three and a half billion years ago, um, there are signs of river valleys and ancient water floods there. In fact, the surreal images that you keep seeing are these river networks that look like dried up rivers with impact craters on top of them. They're that old that over three billion years of dryness, impacts from meteorites have actually produced craters. But they had to be made by flowing water to begin with. So that's the key question for Mars. Is that water still around? Is it under the surface? Is it locked in the polar caps? Uh, and how did it get lost to begin with? These are, these are the big questions we're trying to answer. Well, back in August, researchers announced this, uh, the, this instrument called MOXIE, that it had been generating breathable ox- oxygen. Does that hold implications for humans one day living on the red planet or another planet, per- perhaps, Paul? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, just as Chris said, that DART is is a, a calling card for a technology that we're developing, the ability to move asteroids around and perhaps save our civilization. Moxie is a calling card for um, sustainable living on a planetary surface that doesn't have an oxygen atmosphere. So Mars, like um, Venus, has a carbon dioxide atmosphere. On Mars, it's really thin. It's less than one percent of that of Earth's. But the idea is that we would eventually breathe oxygen in settlements on Mars, not that we had brought from the Earth, which would be staggeringly expensive, um, that we would take the oxygen straight from the atmosphere. And and we have other ideas, too. Uh, We we think we can uh, produce methane on Mars that we could use as rocket fuel. But the way we produce oxygen is we just simply electrolyze the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We strip the carbon dioxide molecules apart. Uh, and we produce carbon monoxide, and that extra oxygen gives us uh, free oxygen. And MOXIE is producing this at a very, very low level. Uh, 100 watts of energy go into it to produce tiny amounts of oxygen. But it works. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if we scale it up, and already people are talking about something called super MOXIE, um, and much larger versions of this might be part of future Mars settlements. So that's one part uh, of a whole bunch of big, questions that need to be resolved before we can live on Mars. Um, The soil is toxic, it's oxidizing, um, and in fact might be dangerous to touch. There's a high radiation level there. Um, If there is water, and I think there is, it probably needs to be drilled for in the form of ice. You know, these these are all big questions we have to uh, answer, but but we're answering them, which Mm -hmm. is but Long way to go. It, it does sound like Mars would not be a very pleasant place to live. Chris, Chris, I want to talk about the Artemis One mission to the moon. This was a really big deal in our household. I mean, we were just kind of a space geek family. So do you think this is a precursor to sending humans back to the moon? Absolutely. Well, it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. assuming the funding holds out, which it's not in jeopardy as far as I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea that, you know, 50 years since Apollo, it's time to go back with this new technology. Um, and Artemis One, I know there was a delay on launch, but Christmas Day, we got this Christmas miracle that actually launched um, and went out uh, all robotics. They had some dummies mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. The, in the seats. 
Um, and it was supposed to prove, can we go out, orbit the moon successfully? Does all the equipment work? Can we come back, reentry burn? It's a brand new type of reentry. Uh, it's a brand new heat shield, and they're using something called skipping reentry. Um, so it's never been tried. It's like instead of just coming straight down at the correct critical angle mm -hmm. and depending on the heat shield, you come in initially and you kind of do some skipping. Oh. So you touch the atmosphere and you measure, hey, how was that? Let's take another dip in the pool and then you take another dip, kind of like skipping a stone sure. to break some of the velocity. So that was a brand new technology that we wanted to try before humans were, were up there. Mm -hmm. And it all worked beautifully. And so the, the projections that I've seen now that Artemis 1 is successful is we're looking at Artemis 2 sometime in the next year, mm -hmm. which will be humans mm -hmm. uh, that are going to go out, orbit the moon, and come back. Same mission, not touching down on the moon, but just going out and proving one more time humans can do it this time. And then Artemis 3 thereafter, which I think they said within three years, this is getting a little more tenuous, Artemis 3 is going to be actually touching down. Okay. Um, and that is going to be the first woman on the moon. And one of the astronauts, I get a big kick out of this. Her name is Nicole Mann. Mm -hmm. And um, she's one of the, uh, in the astronaut corps, there's 18. And I always get a kick that Nicole Mann, if she is the first woman to step foot on the moon, she can take the first step and say, at the same time, I am the first man to step foot on the moon, <laughs> yes. because it, both are true, both man and woman, <laughs> to step foot on the moon. Why has it taken us so long to go back to the moon? Boy, I think the, well, the space race, it was a race. It was a political race. We have to get there first. And then once we did, it was kind of like, oh, well, I guess we're done now. Mm -hmm. uh, the funding kind of dried up. Uh, there was only one scientist to ever step foot on the moon in the Apollo program, Harrison Schmidt, who's a, a former UW-Madison professor, actually, mm -hmm. right here in Wisconsin, Badger. Um, so what kind of science can we do out there? And I know that there was, there was plans to get out there and do it, but they were so prohibitively expensive. And I think that national uh, attention turned towards other issues, and it just went from uh, 1% of the GDP of this country down to like 0.01% of GDP of the country. So the funding just completely dried out. Um, but it's important to note on that, that that money some people think about went out there. Why are we spending so much money out there? But all these patents that came from the Apollo program, they allowed startup companies like cell phone companies, packet uh, translation, even stuff as uh, how to cook chicken correctly without getting food poisoning. All the money that went into the Apollo program really contributed to America's, I think, economic boom mm -hmm. later on because there's these free patents uh, and companies could just pick it up and, and run with it and form um, major companies. Um, and so I don't think something like that could happen again because we're now relying on independent contractors. But why is it taking so long to get to the moon? I just think it's our interest. We humans can do anything if we just put our minds to it. And I don't think we've, we've wanted necessarily to do that. There hasn't been the impetus behind it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul, we're guaranteed at least one lunar landing attempt in 2023. A Japanese company uh, launched its mission on a SpaceX rocket in December and taking a slow route to the moon. Uh, what do you think these types of missions can accomplish in addition to what Chris said? Oh, I, 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 I think they're very exciting. You know, Apollo was both so wonderful and so limiting at the same time. Um, you know, in, in a real way, it shaped my whole life. I live in the United States because of Apollo, uh, for example. Uh, despite growing up in Australia, I just looked at what the Americans were doing, and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, but there were things we missed. We missed, for example, that there are very large reservoirs of ice at the poles of the moon. That's something we didn't have time to find out with Apollo. And now that's a big focus, because almost certainly when we do land with Artemis 3, 
we'll land near one of those ice deposits and explore it. In the meantime, as you say, we've got this ongoing uh, exploration of uh, the moon, um, largely with rockets from the private sector. In fact, SpaceX um, last year launched 61 rockets, which means that it launched more than twice as much as every other company in the United States and NASA included. Uh, it's the biggest launch provider uh, in the world uh, right now. And they're also uh, going to provide, if all goes well, the landing element for Artemis III. It'll be a starship that lands on the moon. Um, so um, this has been an incredibly invigorating component to the space program. I think Apollo was an example of, of, of a mindset that came out of the Second World War, which is big government agencies like the Tennessee Valley Authority, you, you do these big projects, but that's not the paradigm we live in now. We have nimble private sector companies uh, innovating really quickly, and that'll, in, that'll include our exploration of space. Paul Thomas and Chris Janssen are with us today on Route 51 for a discussion on space exploration. Coming up, we'll talk about eclipses, meteor showers, and other cosmic events to expect in the year ahead and how best to experience them without all that expensive gear. We'd like to hear from you, too. You can join by calling 800-780-9742 or email ideas at WPR.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Our guests today are Paul Thomas and Chris Janssen. They are both experts on planetary science as we explore the world of outer space. If you have questions, we'd love for you to join. Email us, ideas at WPR.org, or call 800-780-9742. Given the last song, I must ask you, Chris, about uh, solar eclipses. There is one that is coming to America in October. Uh, it's an annular eclipse, and they're sometimes called a ring of fire. So what what is an annular eclipse? Why is it called a ring of fire? Okay, th th there's so many cool things to talk about this. Uh, you could relate it to the supermoon and, and so on, but the moon orbits the Earth, and you can look up at the size of the full moon, um, and you can try this with your thumb uh, or your fingers. You hold your thumb up at arm's distance. You must keep your elbow locked so that it's not closer to your face or that your thumb gets larger. I'm doing it right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Even pra though it's practicing. <laughs> Good, yeah. Hand-eye coordination. Uh -huh. And you can measure how wide the moon is to your thumb. Okay. So when you notice the moon is larger than your thumb, what, what's happening? It, it's not your thumb that is swollen unless you hit it with a hammer. Right. The moon must be getting closer. Sure. Right? And so we can measure the distance from the moon with its width across in the sky. It's arc seconds of, of width across the sky. So we can measure and we found out the moon does go closer and farther from the earth as it orbits. Um, it is precisely in our, in our history uh, exactly able to cover the sun. Uh, back 10,000, 100,000, 100 million years ago, the moon was closer to the earth and it easily covered the sun perfectly mm -hmm. um, during these eclipses. A million years from now, 10 million years from now, the, Earth, the moon will be so far away, we will no longer have total eclipses because it's too small. Really? So an annular eclipse is where the moon is far enough away that it eclipses the sun, but not fully. 
it's too small compared to the disk of the sun, so we get that ring of fire around oh. the outside. And sometimes when the moon is closer in its, in its elongated orbit, it covers the whole sun, and ta-da, we have a total eclipse at that point. Okay. Oh, okay. Now I know. I, I, I never knew what that meant. I mean, obviously, you, you see the ring, but I don't know. And, and Paul, I want to ask you about a, a little bit about moon things, too. What, what's a supermoon, for example? Yeah, so as Chris said, the moon varies in distance from the Earth, uh, and uh, at times when it's closest, what we call perigee, uh, a full moon at that time will appear to be slightly larger and slightly brighter uh, than at other times. Um, and that's really become a cultural thing the last few years, I noticed. Uh, uh, people have really seized on that. It is a detectable difference, but it's a small one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very small. I have People come to the planetarium and talk about these memes on the internet about the super moon. It will be as as bright as you know, mm -hmm. super huge in the sky. You know, like no, then no. we're in big trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad, very bad. Chris, I want to uh, I want to circle back to uh, what we were talking about just before we had to step away for a moment. Uh, there was an announcement in December that I know that you wanted to to discuss. Yeah, and I brought it up, uh, thought of it right away because of Paul. Something you said about how the new paradigm shift that we have to be nimble and, and on our feet and coming up with fast prototyping and things. And uh, the Department of Energy just announced uh, this last this last year at the tail end uh, about nuclear pulsed fusion uh, mm -hmm. reactor. So we can build it in the size of a, a small building. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually produced energy from fusion power. And I was watching this uh, announcement that this small little startup company has produced. And they're basically the byproducts are not going to be radioactive. And so this engineer who is giving uh, the kind of the lowdown of how they do it was basically putting to shame, I, I, that's a strong word, but basically the European fusion reactor where all the parts will be radioactive with radioactive waste. Um, just on the fly, these guys came up with a way to do it better than a reactor that's costing over a billion euros and it hasn't even been turned on yet. Oh, wow. So yet another major milestone in space uh, this past year. It's just really... Yeah, the power of the stars right here on Earth. Wow. That's why I, I thought, thanks, Paul, for that I, that paradigm shift as yes. we go forward. Yes, and Paul, I, uh, I wanted to ask you about the Juno-Jupiter orbiter that made close passes of Jupiter's moons. What, what did uh, that show us? Yeah, it's only our second spacecraft to orbit Jupiter, Shireen. Uh, the Galileo mission uh, orbited... Uh, Jupiter for about a decade, um, starting in the 1990s. Um, but Juno has a different sort of goal. In fact, it's a much simplified spacecraft than these big planetary spacecraft with all of their cameras and detectors. Um, to begin with, it was really designed to orbit Jupiter, and we would track its orbit, which would actually tell us details about the interior of Jupiter. And in the same way as the InSight lander, a simple mission like this can reveal all sorts of things. So we now know that Jupiter for sure has a core, and that core is made out of hydrogen gas compressed to an incredibly um, uh, different state. It's a, it's a dense metal, it turns out, uh, the pressures inside uh, Jupiter. Uh, and that's mixed up with rock in some way. Um, but a late addition of that mission, it was sort of funny how this happened. Um, the goal was to keep costs down, and in fact, the mission is solar-powered. It's, um, it's about as far away from the sun as you can do that. It has these four really big solar panels that do seem to work quite well. Uh, most planetary missions in the outer solar system use nuclear power um, because there's so little sunlight there. 
But um, someone in a relatively late stage of design suggested a camera. Uh, you know, cameras are expensive and complicated, but um, in the end it was added. And Juno Cam has shown all sorts of fascinating pictures of clouds and, uh, and uh, cyclones at, at, on Jupiter. It's photographed lightning in the atmosphere. And most recently, we've made some close passes of the moons of Jupiter, which we haven't seen since the days of Voyager back in the 1980s or Galileo in the 90s. So Juno's turned out to be a surprisingly exciting and productive mission. And we've got missions headed to Jupiter in the next few years uh, to analyze the moons in particular very closely. I've been really shocked by Juno as far as the engineering again. Uh, the radiation is fatal. Uh, if you're near Jupiter, a gas giant. So if humans are there, if you don't have proper shielding, you're dead. So the spacecraft has to have extra shielding. Um, there's particles coming from the moon Io from its volcanoes that uh, are in the north and south pole. It's called the Io flux tube. Um, they're calculating or uh, pr predicted about a million amps of current through the Io flux mm -hmm. tube. Spacecraft flying through a million amps, it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. um, so I've just been impressed at how well she's held up. Wow, wow. I want to shift a little bit to meteor showers because I want to make sure that we, we touch on this a little bit. They're so cool to watch, but I'm going to ask a really dumb question. What are they exactly, and how do we know when they're coming? Well, they're shooting stars. They're stars entering the Earth's atmosphere. No, they're not shooting stars. <laughs> uh, they're basically burning up debris. Really? Yeah, uh, debris that hits the atmosphere at you know, 25,000 miles per hour, and it vaporizes at, at that from the air friction. Um, meteor showers that are very regularly are actually clouds of debris left over from comets. Mm -hmm. So we have a comet coming through the uh, solar system. The comet sheds uh, mainly ice particles, dust particles, water, frozen vapor, uh, very small particles, little bits of dust and rock. And we know where these clouds are located. There's the, basically, I like to think about the earth as a garbage truck or heading through a, a garbage truck come through your neighborhood mm -hmm. and the top is off the garbage truck and the litter is just all over the ground and the lawns. And mm -hmm. so a comet is a dirty thing and it comes through and leaves a, a trail of debris. Well, every morning when you head on your way to work, you drive through the same part of the neighborhood mm -hmm. and then every night you come back through so you can predict exactly where that garbage is going to be in the solar system. And the earth just plows through that debris field every year mm -hmm. uh, and that debris burns up in the atmosphere and we see them as this vaporizing dust particles and um, up in, in the high atmosphere and there are some to be watching for this this year yes yeah there's four or two real big showers that are kind of like you know you can't miss them the geminids and the perseids geminids in, are in december and the perseids are in august um, it depends on the full moon Depends on clouds, obviously. Um, so if you get the perfect storm of no moon, like a uh, you know no full moon or no moon up in the sky, uh, they're also good in the pre-dawn hours because that's when the Earth's windshield is passing through the garbage field. So um, you think about bugs. If you're going to look for bugs splattered on your windshield, you don't look out the sides. You look out the front. And, mm -hmm. then, and so the pre-dawn hours, some people don't like to stay up that late. Um, and you get some, you know, as you're going to bed the night before, you might get some 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 nice ones, but the big ones are uh, December and August, Geminids and Perseids. Okay, we'll mark our calendars for those for sure. Paul, do you need to have expensive telescopes to to see some of these things? What what can the average person do to really see what's in the sky? They can do a lot, and in fact, the last thing we should do is buy an expensive telescope right off the bat. It's amazing how much you can just see. Um, get away from city lights. Find a dark place to look. Uh, if you have a pair of binoculars, they work great. In fact, I often find myself recommending binoculars to people that 
just want to go a step further to take a look at the moon, say. And I spent a lot of time as a kid looking at the moon through a very uh, cheap pair of binoculars and looking at the shadows of craters as the moon waxed and became a bigger and bigger phase. Um, the biggest thing these days is to get away from just distracting city lights. In terms of using telescopes, long before you buy a telescope, I would look up your local astronomical society, and there are many of them scattered over Wisconsin, and it's not too hard to find out information on them on the web. They always have open nights. They have people who own telescopes that are happy to let you look through them. Sometimes they form um, uh, what's called uh, street-side uh, astronomy, where they take their telescopes into city parks, and you can uh, look through them. So there's so many things to do. And I, I think, as Chris said, a key here is to know what's coming up. So look online uh, at nasa.gov and other uh, skyandtelescope.com and other websites to see calendars of events, when the next meteor shower will be, where the moon is in the sky, what planets are up. Get used to looking at the sky. Identify the constellations. Uh, skymaps.org is a place to download a, uh, a sky chart that you can use anyway. Uh, these are very cheap and very easy things to do that just connect you with the universe. It's really, really exciting uh, and not expensive at all. We, we have a planetary alignment up in the sky, too. There's, In fact, last week there was Mercury, Venus, all the visible planets, all five were up there. We still have four of them. So you could go see Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and, mm. and then the moon up there. It's just like a straight line in the sky. So, yeah, great time to check out an optical instrument and go look. I want to ask you about some of the pioneers who paved the way for future space exploration and the astronauts. Apollo astronaut Walt uh, Cunningham died just this, this week. He was 90 years old. Talk a little bit about the impact he had on the space program, Chris. These astronauts, I remember like the fire that was on the Apollo pad. Um, you know, it affected people profoundly. Uh, in fact, it changed the policies of how that was operational. Um, when we talk about pork barrel spending in the Apollo era, I heard about this story from the, some Boeing engineers in St. Louis at a conference when there were four of them together, um, the Apollo en era engineers. Um, Houston controls the mission uh, after it leaves the pad. So Florida controls the launch. But that is new uh, during the Apollo uh, fire where three astronauts had died. Um, Houston was controlling the oxygen supply to the cabinet uh, cabin. At that point, it was just a pure oxygen content. We didn't have them in their helmets. So if you're at a console in Houston and you see the oxygen level dropping quickly, you don't want your astronauts to do so. What do you do? You turn up the oxygen. Mm -hmm. and the oxygen is still dropping, and you turn it up, and then it's dropping, you turn it up. And what was happening is someone in Houston was actually fueling the fire, making it far more intense. And so it, it was... It, it killed these three astronauts so quickly. And so these Apollo-level uh, level air astronauts are heroes. Mm. I can't even imagine what they did to get into a tiny cramped tin can with a couple of millimeters of shielding between you and the vacuum of space, certain death, uh, unknown radiation levels out there, long-term effect on your human body, didn't really know. So these astronauts are, I mean, they're, they're soldiers. Mm -hmm. They're giving their lives out there and their own bodies for the exploration of space and, and the advancement of human condition. We've got about two minutes left in our time together, and that makes me think about what's, what's, what opportunities are ahead. And obviously, we've come a long way uh, since those, those first early days. But if you could and you had – money wasn't a consideration – would you get on a SpaceX 
Would you? I don't know, Paul. Do you want to take that one first? <laughs> I want to hear both yeah, of your yeah. answers. <laughs> I, I think Chris and I should should have the front seats in the Starship and uh, be taking off from Boca Chica right now. By the way, I went to Boca Chica last uh, winter, and it's astonishing. You can drive right up, and they're building rockets there. Wow. It's an really? amazing place to visit, and I really recommend people do that. Wow. Wow. Mm. I, sometimes I have students ask me, do you want to go to space? Mm-hmm. And first of all, I'm too old. Um, there's what? no, oh yeah, you, to be an astronaut now, if you're f- the physical quality, no way, uh, never qualify. And then secondly, I always say, I like Earth because there's <laughs> cheeseburgers and oxygen and, you know. <laughs> cheeseburgers and oxygen. That's right. I, and in that order. Yes, I love Earth. Uh, and we should take care of this place and someday maybe get out there, but I'd love to come back. I want to go visit. Don't stay. <laughs> All right, one minute left, Paul. What do you think is going to be the biggest thing to come out of the next year of space exploration? I'm really excited about the two missions to Jupiter that are coming up in the in the year and a little beyond. Uh, a European mission called JUICE to look at the, the big moons of the uh, Jupiter system, Ganymede, Callisto, and Europa. And uh, uh, the year after that, a mission called Europa Clipper, a U.S. mission that will explore the ocean underneath the ice on Europa, probably the biggest ocean in the solar system, bigger than all the Earth's oceans together, but underneath the icy surface. Uh, We're going to learn so much about these worlds and and where there's water, maybe there's life. What are you most excited about for the coming year? I know there's some unpublished James Webb uh, Space Telescope papers on detecting atmospheric components of exoplanets. I've just heard rumors we can't say any, you know, people say, we can't say anything, mm-hmm. but you're going to love it. So I'm really looking forward to James Webb discoveries about exoplanetary composition. It's all very exciting. And I want to thank you both for joining us today and talking about this and, and fueling our our <laughs> our enthusiasm for, for outer space. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward, extending a most sincere thanks to our guests, Chris Janssen and Paul Thomas. Our producers are Joy Ratchkramer and Kate Spranger. Joy is our on-air producer today. Executive producer is Rick Ryer. Special music today from The Birds, Train, and Johnny Cash. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. The archive is at double wpr.org slash route 51 oh what a great show thank you so much until next week we are heading out of town Please take me along for a ride.